Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is episode 20 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brina Garen, and today we're gonna have a history lesson. No, 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 don't fumble for the next button. This is important. I've been wanting to discuss this subject for a while, and this is information that every witch should know, regardless of where they live. Today, we're going to talk about witchcraft and the law specifically the history of legal codes related to witchcraft and witch trials in Western Europe and later the UK, US, and Canada. Now I can already hear the groaning, oh come on, this is supposed to be a fun podcast where Bree says salty things and makes terrible puns. Well, I promise you I'm plenty salty about the history of witchcraft and also how some people like to abuse the ignorance surrounding it to advance their own agendas or scare would-be witches away from the craft. I'm also pretty salty about the fact that there are still witch hunts happening in the world today, and the fact that most people just don't know about it because it doesn't exactly make the news. In all things, I consider it to be very important for people to know their rights under the law, and also to know which unjust laws are still on the books and being enforced to harm the populace. Plus, when the community talks about historical witch trials in a general sense, they usually know more about the memes and folktales generated by the events than they do about the actual legal proceedings or what laws the community was operating under. This isn't a call out of anyone or any group, this is just kind of how it is because of how the internet is. We don't know what we don't know, and this information isn't often discussed in detail because history can get very dry very quickly. Even the documentaries you see popping up every October are sometimes more sensational than factual. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to learn today, and hopefully you'll all come away with a better understanding of witchcraft-related law how it evolves, and how it still affects people in modern times. And I just want to mention, because I know somebody out there is going to get the wrong idea because of the subject matter we're about to cover, this is not an excuse to go around bashing Christians or Christian witches. If that's all you're here to do, to get ammunition for that argument, get out. No, I mean it get out. Christians can be good people and Christian witches are valid, and the church has an extremely problematic history, and the alleged supremacy of the Christian religion has been used as an excuse for bigotry, abuse, and genocide for hundreds of years, are two equally true statements that can be said almost in the same breath. I do want to acknowledge that there are people who are living with trauma caused by religious officials and institutions and by people using religion as an excuse for their horrible behavior. 
I have my own beef with the church, and I know plenty of people whose stories are far more harrowing than mine. Mine is actually pretty tame by comparison. I also know and acknowledge that colonialism and Christianity have gone hand in hand for centuries. None of this changes the fact that there are plenty of Christians who are, in fact, actually good people, or that Faith is a cornerstone of community and hope for millions of people in my country and elsewhere in the world. This is not meant to be a Christians versus witches episode or some sort of statement on the persecution of witches in history. This is a history lesson about legal codes, why witchcraft was seen as a crime, and the changing views on witchcraft in the eyes of the law. I haven't spent literal weeks of my time putting this episode together for some dimwit with a persecution complex to turn around and point to this to go, see, see, Christians are evil. This is meant to be informative, because not enough witches know their history, and research is hard. I've taken the good time and trouble to handle the legwork for you. The least you can do is use this information responsibly. So the next time the history of witchcraft comes up, or the history of witch trials, or certain other points that uh, I'll be raising as the episode goes along. Here you go. You have some things you can actually point to. And yes, because we love them, I will be including sources in the show notes. First things first, we need a legal definition of witchcraft. When people were worried about witchcraft in a legal sense, what were they talking about? And we're going to narrow this down to a period of about 500 years, give or take, focusing on European law. Now, you could get into trouble for a whole laundry list of things, depending on time and place. You could get into trouble if you were a midwife and a patient or their baby didn't survive. You could get into trouble if you had a fight with your neighbor and then something, literally anything bad, happened to them. You could get into trouble if you were poor or disenfranchised and had to go around begging. You could get into trouble for being too outspoken or bucking traditional gender roles, especially if you happen to be female. You could get into trouble if someone in the village really didn't like you and was prone to gossip. You could get into trouble if you had seizures or hallucinations or a physical deformity. You could get into trouble for divination or forecasting, particularly if you were, for whatever reason, trying to predict the death of a ruling monarch. There was this whole big thing in England for a while where forecasting someone's death date somehow cemented that death date and would then cause their death. It's a whole big deal. And of course, there was the old standard of our village is seeing hardship and we can't explain it, so who can we blame? I do want to mention very quickly that while the majority of people who were accused of and or convicted of witchcraft were women, and I'm going to refer to them as such since the historical record pretty consistently references gender in a binary sense in relation to the topic, uh, it was not at all unusual for men to be accused, convicted, or executed either, as we shall see. As several historians have noted, witchcraft in a historical sense was a gender-related accusation, but it was by no means gender-specific. 
In a legal sense, what was punishable under the law was called maleficium. This is specifically defined as any kind of magic or sorcery that is intended to and or does cause some kind of harm. This covers all the classic, and it reads kind of like a list of side effects. If you take maleficium, you may experience crop failures, livestock sickening or dying, food stores spoiling, loss of fortune, illness, pestilence, impotence, miscarriage, madness, bad luck, poor health, severe injury, and of course, death. If someone accused you of causing any of these things through witchcraft, it was a very serious charge, because these were very serious problems. I mean, these days we think nothing of just going to the store to replace spoiled food or seeing a doctor if we get sick or injured. But back then, if the milk spoiled, that was it. No milk. If the cows died or the crops failed, the whole town might starve, or at the very least lose a good chunk of their income for the year. If you were sick or injured, that might be it for you if you didn't have access to medical care. Or, at best, you wouldn't be able to work your fields and you'd lose food stores or income if your land didn't produce. And that's not even getting into the obvious implications of murder by magic. There was a time when you could actually sue someone for slander if they called you a witch in public or in neighborhood gossip, because that damage to your reputation could affect your standing in the community or have adverse effects on your business, or even lead to you being brought before the court on charges of suspected maleficium if something happened later on. We do need to pause for just a second and remember that some alleged witches weren't accused of witchcraft as a primary charge, especially if their case was political. It was something that was often bundled in with things like heresy, because you might be able to disprove those other charges. But witchcraft? That had a good chance of sticking, because the accepted evidence for it was basically hearsay or supposedly sinister objects that were found in your possession or in your home. And if you're thinking that a lot of that could be easily manufactured, you are absolutely right. Really nebulous stuff, very difficult to disprove, and a convenient way to cast aspersions on someone's character, even if they were otherwise very respectable. And of course, heresy was a serious charge on its own, back before the whole separation of church and state thing. Saying or doing something against the teachings of the church, or even just practicing the wrong form of Christianity, according to whoever was in power, could and did get people killed. This is not me Christian bashing, this is just me citing acknowledged problematic history. The church has had a lot of schisms, because, you know, it can't always agree with itself. And there was nothing the various factions liked more than to take turns attempting to demonize each other with accusations of heresy and witchcraft and playing a centuries-long game of excommunication tag. Witchcraft and heresy were also bundled with treason in certain cases, but we'll get to that later. I'd like to take just a moment to define some frequently used terms for this episode because there are some words I'm going to be using from time to time which you're going to need to understand in context. We've already talked about maleficium, that's one of the big ones, 
The other big one, as you've heard, is heresy. This is a term that's going to come up over and over again in the conversation about witchcraft and witch trials. Heresy is any belief or opinion contrary to the accepted beliefs of a church or religious institution, or an opinion profoundly at odds with generally accepted beliefs and practices. So obviously, the definition of what constitutes heresy and what makes someone a heretic can vary greatly depending on context. For some Christians, the idea that the Bible isn't the literal word of God is heresy, whereas for, say, certain factions of Wicca, the idea that a witch doesn't have to be part of an initiatory coven would be heresy. That's really just a hypothetical example, since heresy isn't really a word that gets used in pagan circles. You'll mostly see it used in relation to the dealings of the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, although you will occasionally hear it in Protestant circles as well. It's important to note that heresy is different from blasphemy, which is action or speech that directly insults or shows contempt for a deity or sacred objects or practices. And it's also different from apostasy, which is when someone actively renounces or abandons their previously held religion. I've seen a lot of people on the internet using these words interchangeably, and it just burns my biscuits every time it happens. There's some overlap between the three, and a person can certainly commit all three at once. Try it, it's fun. But it's important to know the difference between them. TLDR, heresy is screw your teachings, blasphemy is screw your God, and apostasy is screw you guys, I'm converting. So when we're hearing about heresy in the context of witch trials, it's usually a person who has allegedly said or done something that goes against the religious status quo of the day. And the legal definition of what that entails varies wildly over time, as we shall see. Demonolatry and demonology are two more terms you're going to hear a lot, and yes, they are two different things. Demonolatry is the practice of calling on, working with, or worshipping demons or demonic powers, whereas demonology is the study of all of these things from an outside perspective. Like I said, you're going to be hearing both of these words a fair amount, so I'll do my best to enunciate. Next, we have ecclesiastical courts and secular courts. Ecclesiastical courts are courts which have jurisdiction over strictly spiritual and religious matters. They would hear cases that had to do with questions about or violation of church laws, including heresy. Aha! Now it makes sense. Ecclesiastical courts used to be much more prevalent and much more powerful back in the Middle Ages, and some still held sway up through the early years of the Age of Enlightenment. Secular courts are what we think of as courts today. They handle everything to do with legal disputes or criminal charges, regardless of religious context. These two are going to fight it out over who has jurisdiction over witch trials, and it's gonna get ugly. Lastly, we have canon law. Canon law is a body of religious law governing the conduct of the members of a particular faith. 
This covers things like religious practices, what is and is not included in ceremonies, the criteria for membership in a congregation, prohibited conduct for congregants and church officials, and where the jurisdiction of ecclesiastical courts begins and ends. This is usually applied in the context of Roman Catholicism. It should be mentioned that canon law is not made up of divine mandates and is produced by the governing body of a religion in order to standardize practices and behavior. It is also different from secular law, which is your standard law of the land type stuff. All right, that's the vocab lesson for today. I know that was a lot. Good job for slogging through. Just keep these in mind as we go forward. Before we get into a timeline of how things changed, I do want to remind everyone that when we're talking about accused witches, we are not talking about witches as we understand them today. Most of what we've been told about the so-called burning times is either an exaggeration or a complete fiction. These were not secret pagans or members of some ancient goddess cult being persecuted for their beliefs. These were largely innocent people caught up in firestorms of paranoia, malicious gossip, superstition, fear, and religious zealotry. And we cannot discount the role that classism, sexism, and xenophobia played in these events. For a very long time, as we shall see, the church's official stance was witches and witchcraft belong to the realm of superstition and have no place in Christian thought. But there were fundamentalists and zealots who were so afraid of witches that they decided to hunt for them anyway. There is never one single reason for a witch panic, but there's a pretty well-defined list of possibilities. Social unrest, hardship in the form of conflict, famine, or sickness, and widespread communal anxiety top the list. When communities are frightened, they see the devil everywhere. Do you want witch panics? Because that's how you get witch panics. And just to lay this other myth to rest, Gardner's assertion that 9 million witches died during these events is not at all supported by the historical record. If 9 million people, especially 9 million women, as he claimed, had been wiped off the census in less than 300 years, not only would we still be screaming about it in our history classes today, but the population of Europe would have collapsed between the plague and the wars and the general mortality rate of the day, to put it simply, they didn't have that many people to burn. Gardner was a dramatic bitch, and he was attempting to give witches the same persecution pedigree as the Jewish community. Yes, he did this when the world was fresh off the Holocaust. And yes, it was a shitty thing to do. Tens of thousands of people perished during the heyday of witch trials, and even today in some countries, people are still being condemned and executed for suspected witchcraft. That is real. That is documented fact. And that is enough of a tragedy on its own. No hyperbole necessary. So, now that the salt is flowing, let's get into that timeline. 
There's a lot to get through, so this is going to move relatively quickly, and I'm not going to be diving into every single point, though I will be revisiting some of them in future episodes. We'll be focusing largely on Europe and North America for most of this, since the history of these places and the changes in their legal codes have affected most of the laws regarding witchcraft in the Western world. And I'm not going to hit every point or every event, there's just too much. So if I leave something out or get something wrong, you'll have to forgive me. I did my best. This is me attempting to squeeze like an entire college course's worth of information into one episode. So buckle up, you're about to get a broomstick height view of about 3,000 years of legal history. In the words of Mr. Jackson, hold on to your butts. We begin around 1750 BCE with the Code of Hammurabi, one of the first written law codes we have evidence for. It has sections dealing with magic and how to handle legal charges of sorcery and witchcraft, which means there was already a legal definition of what constituted acceptable and unacceptable magical practices at this time. And yes, this predates Christianity by several centuries. Around 400 BCE, magicians or Magoi, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, have a very negative reputation in ancient Greece. We see condemnations of them in the writings of Plato, among others. Note that this is different from pharmaca, from whence we get the root of the word pharmacy, but certain of those practitioners were also seen as suspect since their practices dealt with poison and taboo medical practices, as well as healing and helping. Around 449 BCE, we get the Law of the Twelve Tables, which are the foundation of Roman law. These describe the rights and duties of Roman citizens, and they include punishments for what we would later call maleficium, blighting crops, causing disease, and so forth. The Twelve Tables also tie witchcraft very closely to divination, prognostication, and the use of poisons. And despite the fact that high-ranking officials regularly employed such people, it was very common for convicted witches to be condemned to death, some of them by burning. I mention this especially because it demonstrates that the execution and burning of witches is by no means original to Christianity, and I feel like that's an important point to make. People certainly like to talk about alleged Celtic and Germanic pagan influences on early Christianity, but it's astounding how often the Roman influence gets left out of that conversation. The Twelve Tables will go on to be the main framework of Roman law for the next thousand years, and they make a considerable impact on later secular and ecclesiastical laws in most of the lands encompassed by the Roman Empire including later laws enacted by the Visigoths and the Salic law codes created by the Franks under King Clovis. Jumping forward a bit, between 150 to 400 CE, Common Era, early Christian writers begin to condemn magic by associating it with ungodly and demonic forces, creating a separation between mortal magical workings and miracles, which are defended as non-magical and divine and therefore acceptable. 375 CE, the Council of Laodicea forbids Christian clergy from practicing any form of magic, 
Specifically, they condemn the practice of astrology and start outlining how church officials should deal with heretics. Keep in mind, the church is still in its infancy at this point. It's barely 300 years old. So they're still deciding what beliefs to keep and which ones to discard. In fact, one of the other issues on the table during this council was the creation of a biblical canon, where they started making decisions on which testaments and epistles would make up what would eventually become the Holy Bible. 425 CE The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo is completed. Sections of this text later become foundations for Christian beliefs on demonology and the association of double worship and demonic pacts with magic and witchcraft. It's important to note that St. Augustine believed that witches and witchcraft were not real, that they belonged to the realm of superstition, and that anyone who believed in such things was either a heretic or they were being deceived by the devil. 438 CE Theodosius II creates an imperial law which prescribes severe penalties for those convicted of practicing magic or divination. In 529 CE, the Code of Justinian reinforces these laws. This codex was meant to be the standard for legal statutes and procedures throughout the Roman Empire, so it's kind of a big deal. 643 CE, the Edictum Ratharii, the first written compilation of Lombard law, the Lombards being a Germanic people who settled in the Italian peninsula. It includes a passage forbidding the killing of female servants or slaves on the grounds of suspected witchcraft, since as Christians, the Lombards supposedly ought to know better and shouldn't have such superstitious minds. So here again, we see the association of witchcraft and superstition. 789 CE, Charlemagne gets on the bandwagon and issues legislation against sorcerers and magicians for his entire kingdom. He also prescribes death to any Saxon pagan who refuses to convert and seems determined to root out paganism in his kingdom by any means necessary. Not cool, bro. He was a big fan of Augustine's The City of God, and this no doubt influenced his policies. However, he also decries belief in witchcraft as superstition, and even threatens trial and summary execution for people who believe in it or accuse others of being witches. So there's this weird difference depending on where you are. The church is attempting to stamp out belief in witchcraft and the persecution of witches, which they see as leftover pagan superstition. But the belief persists. And so do the fear and persecutions. And eventually the ideas of witchcraft and heresy begin to merge. Around 900 CE, a description of women who believe they fly through the night with the goddess Diana appears in a collection of legal canons entitled Canon Episcopi by Regino of Prum. I will note that no mention is made of flying on brooms at this point that comes later. The women described in the canon claim to be riding on spectral animals, a la the Wild Hunt. The document declares that, in the church's opinion, witches do not exist, and anyone who believes in them is being deceived or misled. Believing in witchcraft or accusing someone of witchcraft was considered heresy at this point, because, again, this was something from the realm of pagan superstition, and in the church's view, did not belong in their congregations. 
Around this time, the early penitentials in England are very worried about pagan ceremonies and rites being carried out under the guise of Christmas and New Year's festivities. There are laws passed by a number of prelates, including Eckbert of York, prohibiting the guising and bull or stag costumes associated with these rites. Let me say this again. There are laws passed forbidding pagan-associated rites, which the country folk are performing at Christmas as part of the holiday festivities. I'll be doing a whole episode on the holiday debate at some point because we don't have time to get into it today. But it just goes to show that even this early, the blending of Christian holidays and older pre-Christian festivities had already started. And not because the church sat down and went, Wahaha, these pagan ideas we're actively trying to stamp out are actually great, let's steal them! but because people wanted to hold on to their own regional traditions, which the church wasn't too happy about. I can hear some of you howling already, so let's save the subject for another day. 1022. The first known burning of heretics in medieval Europe occurs at Orléans in France. Now, the Orléans heresy was literally just heresy. There was a splinter sect that didn't go along with the accepted practices of the church, and they refused to recant their beliefs or reintegrate. So they were excommunicated and later condemned and executed. Some accounts of the sect include descriptions of devil worship, orgies, and blasphemous activities like spitting on the cross. These are believed to be embellishments, which was typical of the time and continues to be typical of such accounts for centuries to come. The fastest way to show that disagreement or heresy was a very bad thing was to accuse heretics of ungodly or sexually deviant practices, and this is a theme that we will see repeat itself quite often once heresy and witchcraft start to come together in legal proceedings, and we will see these descriptions repeated when the trials start talking about these alleged witches' sabbaths. Around 1140, Gratian's Decretum is published. This is one of the first standard texts of medieval canon law, which is a big deal. Standardized law was not a thing for a long time, so enforcement of legal codes could be very inconsistent across countries or even counties, and church practices were similarly varied from region to region. So they wanted to revise and standardize. The text includes a version of the Canon Episcopi, that bit about flying women I mentioned earlier, and several sections dealing with magic, sorcery, and superstition. 1184, Pope Lucius III issues the Ad Abolendum, ordering ecclesiastical officials to rigorously investigate cases of heresy. So the Church is getting really serious about heresy. I mean, they were always pretty serious about it in the sense of wanting that unified doctrine and not tolerating dissent, and there were definitely cases of marked conflict before this, but after the Orléans heresy and this decree, the church starts actively investigating cases of heresy with prejudice. It's no longer just, this is not in alignment with the accepted doctrine and must be corrected. It is, this is not canon and therefore it is dangerous and must be destroyed. It's not enough just to excommunicate the heretics anymore. Something must be done. 
and soon after the investigations come the trials. 1231. Pope Gregory IX commissions the first papally appointed inquisitors to hear cases involving heresy. He later issues the decree Vox in Rama, in which he describes heretics gathering to worship a demon in the form of a toad or a pale man, and then engaging in orgies, which sets the stage for the idea of witches' Sabbaths and the practices they entail. This is where we start to see the description of witch Sabbath activities as basically the exact opposite of church activities because that apparently was the worst thing these officials could imagine. And since the devil was supposed to be the opposite of God, clearly devil worship must include Christian ceremonies done backwards or upside down or inside out or whatever. This is something that carries through to the present day, and we see the idea mirrored in sensationalized propaganda fiction, like Michelle Remembers and The Satan Seller during the Satanic Panic in the late part of the 20th century. Then again, these books were written by Christians who'd probably never seen an actual witch or Satanist in their entire lives and made things up out of whole cloth. But I digress. Anyway, 1250 to 1275, Thomas Aquinas establishes much of the basic scholarly understanding of magic and demonology in his writings. These will go on to be primary sources for academic, ecclesiastical, and legislative thinking with regard to witchcraft for a very long time, and they still influence how we think of these topics today. If you get a chance to get your hands on his writings and actually read them, definitely do it. They're very interesting. 1258. Pope Alexander IV prohibits persecution of witches but acknowledges that sorcery, necromancy, and demonolatry are heretical. So he sort of says, yeah, witchcraft is a thing, but let's not get too upset about it unless it's really bad. He instructs papal inquisitors not to get too fired up unless the sorcery also involves manifest heresy, primarily meaning the worship of demons. Unfortunately, the alleged proof of this practice is basically witness testimony from the local community, meaning it's hearsay and gossip. For those of you already mouthing the words, I saw Goody Proctor with the devil, this is part of the precedent. 1325, Alice Kittler, the first person in Ireland to be condemned for witchcraft. This was likely more family drama than any actual crime. She was accused of murdering several former husbands. Um, and Alice herself managed to get away thanks to having friends in high places. But her poor maid, Petronilla, was tortured and burnt at the stake for her alleged involvement. I'm going to revisit this case eventually because it's a really fascinating story, but in the meantime, you can find episodes about the Kilkenny Witch Trials on the Irish History Podcast and the Poisoner's Cabinet. 1326. Pope John XXII issues the papal bull entitled Super Ilius Specula, which describes the alleged practices of witches and sorcerers who consort with demons, and warns the people of the church against learning, teaching, or performing magic. This bull also decrees that anyone engaging in such activity may be summarily excommunicated, and it officially labels witchcraft as heresy, and thus means any accusation of such falls under the jurisdiction of ecclesiastical courts, namely the Inquisition. 
You hear that sound? That's an entire keg of worms cracking open. 1347 to 1350. The Black Death hits Europe like the fist of an angry god. Naturally, the terrified populace blames divine wrath and the work of witches, much in the same way that certain conservative Christian sects blame hurricanes on the LGBTQ community today. Hmm. Also, fun fact, scientists and historians studying this period in history have now confirmed that the plague was likely spread through person-to-person contact. This wasn't rats, this wasn't fleas, this was interpersonal contact, but nobody wanted to believe it. Gosh, good thing that doesn't have any modern parallels. (laughs) 1376. Inquisitor Nicolau Eimerich writes the Directory of Inquisitors, Directorium Inquisitorum, which lays out his claim that magic and witchcraft are heretical due to their involvement of demons and demonic pacts. This creates a precedent, along with that papal bull, for ecclesiastic courts having jurisdiction over these cases in place of secular ones. If this is making you nervous, it should. This document will go on to influence how many of these trials are handled in the future, up to and including the events in Salem. 1425 to 1500. Here come the witch hunts. The number of trials in which charges of maleficium are linked directly to diabolic practices rises significantly during this time, and many of the early treatises on witchcraft are written. A treatise is like a really long essay. We'll be seeing a lot of these. Mostly, they reflect the scholarly, legal, and ecclesiastical opinions of the day, and many of them do have significant public influence later on, as we shall see. 1436. Claude Tholosan, a secular French judge, details accounts of several witch trials that he has personally presided over in his treatise that the errors of magicians and witches may be made clear to the ignorant. I'm not even going to try to pronounce all of that in French. He argues that such trials should be under the jurisdiction of secular courts. So we can already see the tug of war beginning between the religious authority and the secular authority as to who has the right to prosecute these cases, and whether the offense is essentially heretical or criminal, which would decide what kind of evidence could be introduced during the trial and what the guidelines for sentencing should be. It may not seem like a big deal, but this could mean the difference between life and death for the accused. This debate will continue for several centuries. And there's something I want to make clear as we go forward. Right from the beginning of the rise of these witch trials, there were plenty of people who were skeptical of how they were conducted. There were many, many voices raised going, hang on a minute. How can you call this a fair trial or a proper legal proceeding? You're basing everything on superstition and hearsay. You're using coconuts. And this continues all the way through until the laws change enough that such trials no longer happen. Even some of the people who believed that witches were real and had the power to cause harm through magic were side-eyeing these proceedings. So it's not like everyone in Europe was ready to grab a torch and a pitchfork and go rid the countryside of black cats and broomsticks. 
For every person yelling, burn the witch, there was someone else yelling back, you must be out of your goddamn mind. Unfortunately, the burn the witch side included a lot of people in positions of power in the church and the nobility, including kings, queens, and popes, as we shall see. And a lot of things had to change with society, religion, and the law before these other more reasonable voices could gain the majority. 1458. French inquisitor Nicolas Jacquier publishes his treatise, The Scourge of Heretical Witches. This is one of the first major treatises to deal exclusively with the nature and practices of witchcraft and methods of discovering and prosecuting witches. If this sounds familiar, it should, because it has a pretty big influence on a later writer who we all love to hate. And here he is now! 1474, Heinrich Kramer, giving himself the name Instatoris, is made inquisitor in southern Germany and proceeds to preside over numerous witch trials. Put a pin in this guy and be prepared to throw things. We'll be hearing from him again. 1478, the Holy Office for the Propagation of the Faith is established in Spain after King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain petitioned Pope Sixtus IV to create a Holy Office to administer inquisitions. Uh, what does that mean? Say it with me. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition! Cue the surprise, fear, and snazzy red outfits. 1484. At the request of German Inquisitor Heinrich Kramer, Pope Innocent VIII issues a papal bull entitled Summus Desiderantes Effectibus, giving Kramer and his cronies explicit authority to investigate accusations of witchcraft. This basically gave them carte blanche to do whatever they pleased, if it meant rooting out and punishing suspected witches in the areas where they had jurisdiction. This is not good. 1486, Kramer publishes the Malleus Maleficarum, boo! supposedly co-authored by Jacob Sprenger, outlining the methods for identifying and interrogating suspected witches. It includes the papal bull from Pope Innocent and is briefly endorsed by the church before being denounced as superstition. But secular witch hunters and a fearful populace hold on to the text for much, much longer with disastrous results. In 1487, Pope Innocent confirms Tomas de Torquemada as Grand Inquisitor of Spain. This is when that keg of worms busts wide open. 1517. Martin Luther issues a super spicy call-out to the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Reformation begins. Both sides take turns accusing the other of witchcraft, heresy, and consorting with demons, resulting in many show trials and a lot of deepening resentment, as well as a horrendously muddled historical record. Remember, many of these people we think of as being accused of or executed for witchcraft were actually accused of heresy due to being on the wrong side of this debate, depending on which church was in power. 1532. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V declares that witchcraft should be a crime punishable by death, specifically death upon the burning pyre contributing directly to a period of witch panics and mass executions known colloquially to some of us as the Burning Times. Despite this moniker, it should be noted that many condemned witches were routinely hanged rather than burnt. 
It's also important to note that while Gardner's proposed figure of 9 million witches is greatly exaggerated, and again, these people were not witches as we understand the term today, the historical record does show that upwards of 100,000 people may have died as a direct result of these trials, and again, that is tragedy enough by itself. Now, Oddly enough, the number of witch trials is actually leveling off and even declining in some places between 1500 and 1575. But that is all about to change. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you by Portland Buttonworks. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one, but just been like, darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment? Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in four different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items for yourself or as gifts, or order in bulk for merch, table sales, or your own shop. And they are quick. The turnaround time for properly formatted submissions is one to three business days for most orders under 1,000 pieces. That is lightning fast. I've been getting buttons from Portland Buttonworks for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the hex positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the PBW Witch Shop for a thoughtfully curated selection of witchcraft, magic, and occult-related zines. They've got books, buttons, tarot cards, and more. The collection has a refreshing emphasis on magic that relates to traditional and folkloric witchcraft, chaos magic, secular witchcraft, magical plants and herbs, queer witchcraft, politics and social justice witchcraft, and other non-Wiccan magic. There's a good chance they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Witch Shop and Zine Distro at pbwwitchshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. This episode is brought to you in part by Crowsbone. Crowsbone is a family-owned business with 20 years of experience in the study and practice of magic. Their selection combines carefully curated wholesale goods, unique second-hand finds, and handcrafted items from their home base. Peruse their excellent selection of books, home decor, spell components, and so much more. Make sure you check out their seasonal subscription packages and mystery boxes, as well as their range of personalized services and readings. While you're there, check out their working community survey, featuring a variety of voices from the witchcraft community and their library of free printables. You can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at The Crowsbone or on Tumblr at Crowsbone for regular updates and sales. And now is the perfect time to do it because the good people at Crowsbone are offering my listeners a 15% discount on their products and services. Just use the code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout. This offer excludes subscriptions. Refresh your witchcraft supplies and help support small business while you're at it. Visit Crowsbone.com and remember to use code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout for 15% off your order. Crowsbone, to thine own self be true. This episode is brought to you in part by Global Gray Ebooks. 
Research is an important part of any witch's journey, but sometimes it's hard to find readily available information or classical sources. And who has the time to wade through stacks of dusty tomes these days? Fortunately for all of us, there's Global Grey eBooks, a free online archive of public domain literature. Curated by a single tireless archivist, this site offers so much more than your average eBook repository. The archive is curated into categories, fully searchable by topic, title, author, and keyword, and there are things here you've only ever heard about before. You can wade through the archive at your leisure, or, for a small donation, you can download entire collections in one go. The books come in PDF, EPUB, and Kindle formats, and make excellent additions to a well-rounded digital grimoire. I highly recommend checking out the Occult Collection, as well as Mysteries and Secret Societies for lots of interesting and unusual works. You can check out the full archive at globalgrayebooks.com. Remember, this site is all the work of one person, and it runs on donations, so make sure you drop a few dollars in the tip jar or purchase a collection to help keep the content coming. I know my witches are going to want to check out titles like The Black Pullet and Culpepper's Complete Herbal and English Physician, but you can also find copies of foundational texts that help shape witchcraft as we know it today, such as the Gardnerian Book of Shadows, Leland's Aradia, Levi's History of Magic, and so many more. I've used this site dozens of times to find classical sources for my own research, both for personal projects and for this show, and I can't endorse it enough. Whether you're interested in the history of witchcraft or just looking to expand your library, visit Global Grey eBooks at www.globalgrayebooks.com. That's Grey with an E for the best collection of free public domain eBooks a witch could want. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sisters Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like banishing powder, witch web kits, and witchy buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brainagarin.wordpress.com shop to place your order today. And now, back to the show. 1542. Henry VIII passes a law that makes witchcraft a felony for the first time in English history. This also establishes the precedent that convicted witches must forfeit their goods and property, and it removes the benefit of clergy, which previously allowed church officials to basically dodge legal charges by insisting that they be tried by an ecclesiastical court rather than the king's court. If you know your history, you know Henry really wasn't a fan of the Catholic Church. Lots of raiding and pillaging, lots of tearing down monasteries and convents and taking their stuff, plus establishing the Anglican Church because the Pope wouldn't give him his way. It's a whole mess. Anyway, this act was later repealed by Henry's son, Edward VI, during his very brief reign as king. 1553 Mary Tudor becomes Queen Mary I of England and proceeds to do her damnedest to reverse the English Reformation begun by her father and continued by her brother and his counselor, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. During her five-year reign, she decrees that England will once more be a Catholic kingdom and reinstates the previously repealed Heresy Acts. 
She orders a rout of Protestant leaders, leading to the arrest, prosecution, and execution of nearly 300 people, most of them burnt at the stake. This becomes known as the Marian Persecutions, and leads to Queen Mary being remembered in history as, yep, Bloody Mary. Later English monarchs will have their own purges, but few will be as public or as fervent about it as Mary. This doesn't actually have much to do with witchcraft, at least not directly, but it creates a precedent in English law for charges of heresy and treason to begin to be seen together. 1563, an act against conjurations, enchantments, and witchcrafts. A statute ordering capital punishment for convicted witches is passed in England under this name. This is during the reign of Elizabeth I. Now, it's important to note that this statute only mandated the death penalty in cases where provable harm had occurred. Mere mischief was still punishable by a year in prison. But if a person was convicted of witchcraft a second time, it was off to the gallows with you. And yes, the gallows, not the stake. The Act states that anyone who should, quote, use, practice, or exercise any witchcraft, enchantment, charm, or sorcery, whereby any person shall happen to be killed or destroyed, end quote, is guilty of a felony without benefit of clergy and was to be put to death. It's also important to note that accusations of witchcraft conflated with accusations of poisoning begin to appear in English law books around this time. The really important part of the Elizabethan statute is that it made maleficium a felony again, which removed jurisdiction from ecclesiastical courts to secular ones. Witchcraft and heresy were sometimes bundled with treason charges around this time, because people might sympathize with an accused witch or heretic, but nobody wanted to be seen to side with a traitor. Similarly strict laws are also passed in Scotland in the same year, though these applied to both the practice of witchcraft and the consulting of witches for magical aid or favors. This same year, Johann Weir publishes On the Deception of Demons, an important skeptical look at various aspects of witchcraft. In this book, Weir criticizes the current practices and justifications associated with witch trials, arguing that alleged cases of witchcraft arise from delusions on the part of the accuser or the accused, rather than demonic pacts or cooperation with evil forces. He puts forth the opinion that these cases are likely more psychological than supernatural. His book also includes a rather famous index, which lists out a sort of hierarchy of hell, with all the names, stations, and alleged powers of various demons. This was not meant to instruct readers in demonolatry, but, according to Weir, was meant to expose the trickery of people who claimed to practice necromancy or call on demons to gain power or discover hidden knowledge. And yes, he does state that his main source is the text we now know as the Key of Solomon. Weir's book and the skeptical inquiry it encourages later helped to end witch trials in the Netherlands and go on to be a major influence on Reginald Scott's discovery of witches. 1566. The first major witch hunt in England takes place in Chelmsford, Essex. This is the first significant trial that takes place under the revised Elizabethan statute. 
If you've ever heard of a witch trial that includes a cat named Satan, which I feel is a bit on the nose, and the cat was later given away and turned into a toad by someone else, this is that trial. The charges revolve around the presence of this alleged familiar and the maleficium that the accused witch is committed with its help. Elizabeth Francis and Joan and Agnes Waterhouse are the accused parties. Agnes is convicted and hanged. Elizabeth is convicted but only imprisoned and then hanged later after another conviction, that two-strikes rule I mentioned before. And Joan Waterhouse, the daughter of Agnes, is entirely acquitted. However, the next time a witch hunt comes to Chelmsford, things won't be quite so orderly. Mmm, foreshadowing. 1575 to 1675. This is when things start to get really bad. This is peak time for witch hunts all over Europe, and things are reaching a fever pitch. At least one historian has referred to this time as the century of fire. And plenty of people take advantage of the hysteria to do away with people they don't like or to line their own pockets. Self-styled witch hunters roam the countryside, offering to rid towns and villages of the devil's disciples. For a fee, of course. It really brings out the worst in human nature. Secular and ecclesiastical courts continue to argue over who should have jurisdiction over witch trials. Meanwhile, the description of what constitutes witchcraft continues to evolve in response to rumor and superstition, war and famine and pestilence, continue to ravage the continent, and many, many innocent people are caught in the crossfire. 1580, French political philosopher Jean Baudin publishes his highly influential work on the demonomania of witches. He talks a lot about demonolatry and how witchcraft necessitates a pact with the devil, and how demons can influence judges and magistrates into acquitting or being lenient on their minions. So he's claiming that if an accused witch is acquitted or basically in any way given a fair trial that doesn't end in execution, it's because a demon whispered in the judge's ear and made him do it. Because, you know, it's clearly impossible that the defendant could be innocent. Baudin also directly attacks the judicial standards put in place by the Parliament of Paris, which required silly things like physical evidence, unimpeachable witnesses, and confessions that weren't extracted through torture. Ridiculous, I know! Baudin claims that gossip and hearsay are more reliable than all of these things because rumors concerning witches and sorcerers are nearly always true. Yeah, screw this guy. And his book went on to be highly influential in the conversation about witches and witch trials and what constituted proper evidence and fair treatment for the accused. If you remember Elifa Levy from The Trouble with Tarot, he cites Baudin as a highly learned man and a fellow student of the Kabbalah. To quote Levy, the Kabbalist Baudin, who has been considered erroneously of a feeble and superstitious mind, had no other motive in writing his demonomania than that of warning people against dangerous incredulity. And yeah, spoiler alert, Baudin was in fact incredibly superstitious and rigidly unforgiving of anything he saw as spiritual wickedness, despite being open to the idea of several religions existing in the same country without open conflict, and that is very evident in his work. 1584. 
Reginald Scott publishes his skeptical expose, The Discovery of Witchcraft. Now, if you haven't read it, you should. This book is a bombshell. Scott sets out to prove that popular beliefs of the day concerning witches and witchcraft, things that are taken for granted by the general populace and the church by this time, are in fact nothing more than superstition at best and outright deception at worst. He talks about what we now would call stage magic or illusions. He talks about how rural populations can easily be misled by things they don't understand. And he directly attacks the Catholic Church and writers like Bodin and Sprenger for maintaining and furthering harmful superstition that are leading directly to the deaths of innocent people. Scott's aim in this work was to debunk some of these ideas and protect vulnerable people who were the common targets of witchcraft accusations. The poor, the elderly, the disenfranchised, the infirm, and persons with mental illness. Now, Scott does talk about certain types of magic and sorcery as if they're accepted fact. Astrological connotations of magical gems and unicorn horns and such. And he tells tales of court magicians in the text as well. So Scott's basically saying, yes, magic is a thing, it exists, but all these beliefs about witchcraft that are being tossed about, all these far-fetched accusations, those are bunk. And the church and religious scholars are spreading harmful superstitions, and it's getting people killed. Can we not? As you can imagine, given the religious and political climate of the time, this was not well received. This book was so controversial in its day that it was rumored that when King James came to the throne in 1603, his agents burned every copy they could get their hands on. And indeed, demonology actually contains passages directly rebutting and attempting to discredit Scott's work. We'll get to Jimmy in a minute. But despite all this... The discovery of witches goes on to be even more influential than Bodin's demonomania. It becomes a sort of record of the beliefs on witchcraft, magic, sorcery, alchemy, astrology, and stage magic which were popular at the time. I really recommend tracking this down on Project Gutenberg or Global Grey eBooks if you have a minute. It's well worth checking out, and not just for a rage read. 1587-1593, the Trier Trials in Trier, Germany, where Archbishop Johann von Schonenberg decided to purge his diocese of Jews, Protestants, and witches. The designation here is important. Remember, these people weren't looking for pagans. They were looking for people they considered heretics. And unfortunately, heresy is whatever the man at the top says it is. 368 people are burned at the stake with no respite given for age, gender, or position. Tragic. 1590, the North Berwick Trials in Scotland, notably presided over by King James VI of Scotland, later also King James I of England, and producer of the King James Bible and demonology. James had a personal stake in these trials, believing that the people involved had a vendetta against him. 
Now, you'll recall from a previous episode where I chatted about witchcraft in Shakespeare with dear Lozzie that good old Jimmy considered himself the godliest boy who ever godly boyed and was obsessed with and paranoid of witches from a very young age. This was the guy who believed that the storm which delayed the ship his fiance was on had been conjured by witches, and he went looking for them. The North Barrack trials were part of the result. I'll likely be coming back to examine these trials and the rest of the impact King James had in much more detail in a later episode, because he sent a whole bunch of precedents, and pretty much none of them are good. James later referenced these trials and the events associated with them in demonology. Further witch hunts will continue to happen sporadically across Scotland over the next hundred years. 1604, England's new Witchcraft Act put into place by newly crowned King James I and VI, an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits. This broadens the previous Elizabethan Act to include the use of familiars and the conjuration of evil spirits in the definition of witchcraft. And it is this act that will be referenced by a rather infamous team of witch hunters a few decades later. Oh yeah, you know what's coming. It's also interesting to note that there is a particular fixation on familiars in many English witch trials, which is not generally seen elsewhere. There are actually distinct regional variances with regard to what witches were supposedly doing, depending on where you are. For instance, in Scandinavia, they tended to focus on stealing and bewitching children. In Germany, they tended to focus on the witch's Sabbath and consorting with the devil. In France, they tended to focus on demonic torment and possession. And in England, apparently, it was all about the familiars. 1609 to 1614. The Spanish Inquisition terrorizes the Basque region of Spain and France, searching for witches and, yet again, Jews. Torture is used extensively to extract confessions, leading to so many people coming forward to confess outlandish and impossible sins that the presiding judges eventually come to believe that nothing is actually going on and dismissing the case. Unfortunately, this doesn't save the 11 poor souls who were executed or died in prison, or the countless victims who were tortured, harassed, or had their lives upended over nothing. 1612 to 1634, the Lancaster Witch Trials in Lancashire, England, encompassing the Pendle and Samelisbury trials along with some others. In Pendle Hill, a feud between two rival families, both of which have advertised themselves as folk healers and practitioners of witchcraft for business purposes, results in the deaths of ten people. I'm going to be doing a deep dive on this in a future episode because it is just bonkers. I mean, the names alone make it. The key players in this are two old women known in their home villages as Chattox and Old Demdike. It's... it's a lot. So just know that you'll be hearing about this again someday. In Samelessbury, three women, Jane Southworth, Janet Beerley, and Ellen Beerley, were accused of witchcraft by a teenager named Grace Sourbutts, Go ahead and laugh. Her name is hilarious. 
It was revealed that young Grace had been coached by a local priest to point the finger at these women, and thankfully all three were acquitted. The court clerk, Thomas Potts, eventually publishes a record of the proceedings entitled The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. 1623-1631. The Bamberg Witch Trials in Bamberg, Germany. I have to stop for a second here. This one, this one breaks my heart. We talk about Salem, we talk about Mary Tudor, we talk about Matthew Hopkins, and we will get to his ass. And we're quite right in saying that the loss of life there was tragic. But Bamberg leaves them all behind. Over an eight-year period, nearly 1,000, 1,000, 1,000 people are accused and executed in a single city. They have to build a special prison just to house all the people who are arrested and sent for interrogation. Men, women, and children. Some of them on the flimsiest evidence you can think of, like making an offhand remark about witches, or being the subject of less-than-complimentary public gossip. And yes, more torture more false or extorted confessions, more of that where there's one witch, there must be more bullshit. And a prince bishop, too zealous and too greedy to spare anyone he gets his hands on, since the property of the condemned is confiscated and added to his own coffers. The trials finally end when Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II steps in and issues a mandate to stop the persecutions, and sends notorious witch trial component Anton Winter to make sure that it sticks. The guy who started it all, Prince Bishop Johann Georg Fuchs von Dornheim, fuck that guy, flees to Austria and dies in exile, remembered in history as the Hexenbrenner, the witch burner, and may he and everyone like him rot in whatever hell awaits such people. Southern Germany was just a mess around this time. Between the Trier trials beginning in 1581 and Bamberg trials ending in 1631, there were at least three other major trials in Fulda, Eichstadt, and Würzburg. The region was very, very rigidly Catholic, and the prince bishops governing the region had entirely too much power and way too much witch phobia. 1631. This is much less dire, I promise. The German Jesuit Friedrich Spee von Langenfeld, who had seen some of the worst witch trials Germany had to offer, anonymously publishes a warning for prosecutors, the Cautio Criminalis. He denounces many of the most popular charges as products of fable and superstition rather than actual evidence. He argues that accused witches should have proper legal defense, and he very vehemently opposes the use of torture to extract confessions and the idea that where there is one witch, there must be more. He wrote... Torture has the power to create witches where none exist. Just what a mic drop. 
Imagine the amount of brass that it took to publish one of the first really, truly harsh critiques on the way witch trials were conducted since Scott's discovery of witches in the middle of the worst spate of witch hunts Germany had ever seen. Say what you will about the Jesuits, but von Langenfeld had his shit together. This treatise encourages cooler heads to prevail and eventually helps bring an end to the witch hunts. So good on that guy. 1634, the Laudan Possession Trials. After alleged supernatural events and strange behavior are reported in a cloister of Ursuline nuns in Laudan, France, a priest by the name of Father Urbain Grandier is accused of summoning and consorting with evil spirits. The nuns claim that Grandier is a sorcerer who had sent demons to possess and torment them. Grandier never confesses, despite pointy persuasion, and is eventually burnt at the stake. This case is now widely considered to be a series of false accusations and shared hysteria. 1644 to 1647. Here they are, the motherfuckers you've been waiting for, Matthew Hopkins and John Stern. These assholes. Okay. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because Lazzie and I will be thoroughly ripping them to shreds next month. But on the list of people in history I would like to punch in the face, they're in the top 10. Now, in England, there were somewhere around 500 executions for witchcraft between the years of 1500 and 1800. Good span of time. Over the course of three years, Hopkins and his cohorts were personally responsible for over 100 of them, and possibly quite a few more. 20% of all the witchcraft accusations in three centuries by one small group in just three years in one area, and all of it from a deliberate exploitation of people's fears for clout and profit. Disgusting. Hopkins, the self-styled Witchfinder General, oh my god, and Stern, known among the populace as the Witch Pricker, would roll into various villages and declare to the inhabitants that they were on a sacred mission to root out supposed witches from the countryside, claiming to have an official commission from Parliament to do so. Spoiler alert, they did not. They would employ various rigged tests and highly specious evidence to point out the alleged witches among the locals who they would promptly put on trial and summarily execute, usually by hanging. And then, of course, they'd clean out the village coffers and be on their way. Most of the ideas we have about witches' marks, that they don't bleed or that they're used to feed a familiar, and the witch-ducking or the swimming test come from the claims put forth by Stern and Hopkins. They cited texts like Demonology and the Malleus Maleficarum to justify their activities, and demanded outrageous sums from the townspeople for their services. We know that they were personally responsible for and or involved with a number of mass trials in East Anglia, including the well-known Chelmsford trials and the first set of the Bury St. Edmunds trials. Unfortunately, Hopkins was never brought to justice for his crimes, dying in 1647 at his home in Manningtree, Essex. There's a legend that says he was subjected to his own swimming test and subsequently hanged as a witch, but there's no evidence for this. 
Historical records indicate he probably died of tuberculosis, and that's almost as satisfying. Stern retired to his farm and lived until 1670, preserving and publishing records of their shared endeavors. <laughs> Just you wait until October, we're going to get him. 1645 and 1662, the Bury St. Edmunds Witch Trials. Technically, there was a large series of trials occurring in this town between 1591 and 1694, but these two stand out. As I mentioned before, the 1645 trials were presided over, and boy are those some big fat air quotes, by Matthew Hopkins, and resulted in the deaths of at least 18 people. Hopkins claims there were more in a follow-up trial. The records aren't exactly reliable, since most of the surviving testimony comes from the witch finders themselves. More would certainly have died, but a superior court stepped in. In 1662, two women were accused of maleficium and convicted, based largely on hearsay and spectral evidence. They were later executed. In 1682, the booklet A Trial of Witches is published, which discusses this second trial and makes a case for the admission of spectral evidence during witch trials. Yes, the court in Salem had heard of it, and yes, they bought into this idea. We'll get to it. I do need to mention the last witch trial in Bury St. Edmunds, which was presided over by Lord Chief Justice Sir John Holt, who is credited with having a very large part in ending the proliferation of witch trials in England. He pointed out the holes in the case and repeatedly noted how ludicrous the charges were and how flimsy the evidence was. The defendant in that case was acquitted. 1649. The Covenanter regime in Scotland puts new laws into place to enforce godliness. These acts make it a capital offense to commit blasphemy, worship false gods, or curse one's parents. They also ratify the 1563 Act and plug in those familiar spirit expansion packs. It's not a good time. The whole story of the Church of Scotland is a wild ride. I'm not going to go into it, but if you're interested in religious history or a really good story about various church factions fighting over who is the godliest boy, definitely check this out. 1668 to 1676. Witch hunts occur in Mora, Sweden. During one trial in 1669, over 60 people are accused of witchcraft and at least 15 are executed. Again, many of the charges are based on testimony extracted under torture or coached from children. Child stealing and flying to attend a witch's Sabbath are chief among the charges. In another trial in Alvdalen, 30 people are tried and 18 are executed again on the testimony of children. You can see the precedent being set. 1675 to 1750. The frequency of witch trials declines across most of Europe during this period, and the witch hunts finally come to an end. But not before there's one more spate of trials. 1675 was not a good year. 1675, the Torsaker Witch Trials, the largest witch trials in Sweden's history. 
A brief but virulent witch panic swept through the region when Lutheran ministers informed their congregations of the Dalarna and Mora trials of 1668 to 1669. This is basically how people got their news back then. They would get it from the minister in the pulpit. They're also told by a particularly zealous minister by the name of Laurentius Horneus that a witch could be identified by an invisible mark on their forehead. Much like in Salem, children, young boys in this case, start pointing out these alleged marks on a number of women in the village. This leads to an outbreak of hysteria where more and more people are accused and in turn accused others in an attempt to save themselves, all while the young boys, who were clearly lying and possibly coached, literally point the way. In the end, 71 people, 65 women and 6 men, are executed in a single day. The boys who were responsible for the majority of the false accusations are later found murdered. Unsurprisingly, no one has ever tried for the crime. 1675 to 1690, the Salzburg Trials in Austria, also called the Magician Jackal Trials. These trials were rather unique in that nearly all of the accused parties were men. It's also very, very sad in that many of the victims are very young. And by young, I mean teenagers and literal children. So what happened was that Barbara Colloran and her partner Paul Kaltenpacher were put on trial for witchcraft in 1675, and Barbara, under pointy persuasion, confesses that her son, Paul Jacob Kohler, made a pact with the devil. Allegedly. She is executed, and a warrant is issued for her son, who comes to be known as Magician Jackal. Now, as far as I can tell, he was never arrested. But in 1677, the government of Austria receives word that Magician Jackal is dead. Unfortunately, authorities have already arrested a 12-year-old boy by the name of Dionysus Feldner, who confesses to knowing the man and spins this wild tale of Jackal being the leader of this huge gang of beggar children and teaching them all various kinds of magic. This leads to mass arrests of homeless children and teenagers in the Salzburg slums. And despite a complete lack of anything resembling actual evidence, the tales just get wilder and wilder until Jackal is painted as this murderous monster with a small army of minions at his beck and call. The hysteria gets completely out of control for a time, and 139 people are executed, 113 of them male, and the largest portion of them under 21 years of age. 1682. Following the affair of the poisons, King Louis XIV reclassifies the crime of witchcraft in France as mere superstition, no longer warranting capital punishment, effectively ending legally sanctioned witch hunting in that country. Mind you, this was after a massive scandal that engulfed the entire French court, where dozens of people were found to be attending black masses and buying aphrodisiacs and poisons from various persons around Paris, the most famous of them known as La Voisin. 
People were getting poisoned left, right, and center. So often, in fact, that popular chatter of the day made mention of inheritance powders. This scandal went all the way to the top, with the king's own mistress, Madame de Montespan, being implicated in a plot to bewitch the king so that he would favor her and the children he'd fathered with her. And it's widely believed that the king changed the laws so he wouldn't have to execute his mistress. The records of the arrests and subsequent trials were actually destroyed by royal order, and it's only because one of the investigators kept meticulous notes and hid them away that we know this happened at all. The whole thing is really bonkers. I highly recommend reading more about the affair of the poisons if you love history and true crime and buckets of royal intrigue. 1692. And here we are in Salem, Massachusetts for the Salem Witch Trials. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this because I could do an entire episode just on these events alone, and someday I might. The short version is that, much like in Sweden, a bunch of children living in Salem and nearby Andover started accusing their neighbors of witchcraft. And yes, this was almost certainly coached. The trials revolved around spectral evidence and hearsay, and it was basically a perfect storm of Puritanism, lapsed charters, personal grudges, and small-town paranoia. Plus, one of the presiding judges was Chief Magistrate William Stoughton, who was obsessed with convicting as many witches as possible and has one of the most punchable faces I've ever seen. Nineteen people were hanged, one was pressed to death, and a handful more died in prison. The trials didn't stop until somebody leveled an accusation at the governor's wife, and then the governor finally decided to step in and do something. Quaker writer Thomas Mall was among those who publicly criticized the trials, stating it were better that 100 witches should live than that one person be put to death for a witch, which was not a witch. After the trials, the court of Oyer and Terminer was dissolved, and the Massachusetts Bay Colony General Court passed an act against conjuration, witchcraft, and dealing with evil and wicked spirits in December 1692, which held over the statutes of the existing 1604 law, but included clauses which described what could be admitted as evidence. The court held hearings for the few remaining people still awaiting trial, but they specifically refused to admit spectral evidence, and as such, the remaining accused were largely acquitted. If you want to know all the details about Salem, I highly recommend Season 1 of the Unobscured podcast hosted by Aaron Mankey. It's a deep dive on the trials, the town, the people, and the events surrounding the whole fiasco. Very well-researched, really riveting to listen to. 10 out of 10 would listen again. 1706. Grace Sherwood is the last person to be imprisoned for witchcraft in the colony of Virginia. I told Grace's story in detail on the Toil and Trouble podcast back in December of 2019, and I will be revisiting her on this show at some point because she's an absolute bamf. The short version is that town gossip was against her. 
She was tried and acquitted multiple times, even suing some of her accusers for slander, and she was eventually subjected to the swimming test by a less enlightened court. There are some notable landmarks in Virginia named Witch Duck Road and Witch Duck Point in her honor. Grace was imprisoned for seven years and subsequently released to live out her life in relative peace. Area folklore holds two interesting tales surrounding her death, one claiming that a sudden rainstorm on the day of her funeral caused a flood in which her coffin floated through the entire town for an entire week, and the other claiming that she was laid in state in her home and a wind came howling down the chimney and her body was stolen away, with a single cloven hoofprint left behind in the soot. 1727 Janet Horn is the last person to be legally executed for witchcraft in the British Isles. Her daughter had also been sentenced to death at the same trial, which was entirely based on neighborhood gossip and wild speculation, but fortunately the daughter managed to escape. 1735. British Parliament passes the Witchcraft Act. This law makes it a crime punishable by a year in prison, to claim that any person has magical powers or to accuse someone of witchcraft. Finally! This effectively ends the witch hunts of the two previous centuries and offers greater protection to vulnerable members of society who were often targets of witch panics. This is a big fat sit down and shut up to the people who are still barking about how the world is in danger from the servants of the devil. Gosh, good thing there aren't any modern parallels there, either. Oof, ouch, I just rolled my eyes so hard I saw the back of my own head. Oh, and it's important to mention, this law also mandates punishment for people claiming to be witches, or claiming to have supernatural powers for the purpose of fleecing people out of their money. This does cause some problems for people who make their living through folk remedies, herbalism, fortune-telling, mediumship, or stage magic, but a fine is much better than being hauled off to the gallows. It remains on the books long enough that it actually causes problems for some witches in the modern day, but we'll get to that in a minute. 1782. Anna Goldie, a maid accused of sickening her employer's daughters with witchcraft, is the last known person legally executed for witchcraft in Europe. There were at least two more executions in Poland the following year, but these were carried out under an outdated legal code, and it's very possible that if the proper authorities had been able to react in time, they might not have happened at all. 1828. German professor of law Karl Ernst Jark puts forth the claim that people who were persecuted in the witch panics were not Satanists or devil worshippers. I mean, we knew that already, but still. But instead were members of a pagan cult that had survived the Christianization of Europe and rural populations. And because the church was afraid of competition, they had condemned these people as satanic in order to justify their eradication. I mention this because it represents a shift in thought more than any change in legal codes. And I should also mention that Yark's thesis, which was not supported by the historical record, 
became part of the basis for later works on occultism, including Margaret Murray's quickly disproved writings on the supposed survival of a secret witch cult in Western Europe. And I'm sure those of us who are really, really tired of explaining the concept of historical revisionism to other witches will also recognize this claim. This is the cause of many, many headaches for modern witches who have an eye on history. I will definitely be returning to this topic in the future episode because the pervasiveness of historical misinformation in the witchcraft community really needs to be addressed. 1921, skipping ahead a bit. Margaret Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe is published, and she is given authorship of the Encyclopedia Britannica definition of witchcraft. She uses this platform to advance her theory of a surviving pre-Christian pagan religion. Her evidence is... not good. It basically consists of taking witch trial records at their word, at face value, and speculating wildly on the idea of what that means about the real practice of witchcraft and the presence of witches in medieval and Renaissance Europe. This is what gives us the myth of the burning times in its first recognizable form, as well as the modern idea of the secret surviving witch cult and the unbroken line. Murray quotes the ideas put forth by Yark, which filtered down through later occult texts such as Fraser's Golden Bough and Michelet's La Sorcier. Oh, I'll be doing a whole episode on her at some point. But just for now, know that her work is thoroughly discredited and has been for quite some time. The trouble is, her version of the encyclopedia article wasn't revised until the 1960s. So there's a whole generation of people for whom this was presented as academic fact. And we can clearly see the influence this has had in modern witchcraft, in the amount of merchandise carrying the slogan, we are the granddaughters of the witches you failed to burn, the number of witches claiming to come from a secret pagan tradition or an unbroken line, and the persistence of the burning times myth. Murray's work had a profound effect on the foundations of Wicca as well. So if anyone is citing Murray's work as if it represents historical fact, you should immediately be suspicious of what they're saying. The problem is that while academia has been revising their view of history as new evidence presents itself, the witchcraft community often does not. I mean, look at how many books from the 90s are still being recommended as foundational texts, and these books are chock full of ideas that come from the 1890s and haven't been updated since. It's like I said at the top of the episode, studying is hard. I get it. If it's not presented in an engaging way, history can be dry and boring, and it's easy to get swept up in sensational ideas about underground traditions and secret pagan handshakes, especially if one happens to have a burgeoning persecution complex already on board. But even if the fact is less interesting than the myth, we can't keep clinging to outdated ideas disproved theories, and historical misinformation 
just because it fits a desired narrative. We don't need a grand ancient tradition or a canonized list of martyrs to legitimize our existence as modern witches. We are already legitimate simply by virtue of existing. If you want to learn more about the myth of the burning times, I definitely suggest checking out the related episode of BS Free Witchcraft, where Trey Dorn discusses the subject in their typical salty fashion. 1944. Helen Duncan is the last person to be imprisoned under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. Her conviction led to the repeal of the Act and the introduction of the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951. Now, the Fraudulent Mediums Act basically says that the only time you can prosecute someone for a crime related to witchcraft is when they've been purporting to perform magic or mediumship with the intent to defraud their customers. There were people being prosecuted under this act as recently as the early 2000s in Canada. This is why a lot of witch shops and occult practitioners you see advertising online will mark their wares as curios or state that their services are for entertainment purposes only. If you claim that your stuff works reliably or can replace medical or psychiatric care, or if you're offering services like legal or financial advice that you're not qualified to give, you open yourself up to possible litigation. This is why I get so fired up about witches who think they can call themselves herbalists because they've read a few books and they're handing out medical advice online. Some things you really do need a certification for. It's fine if you want to practice these things for yourself in your own home, but the second you start handing out advice or medicine that might be used by someone else, you can be held legally responsible for what happens next. The Fraudulent Mediums Act was repealed in 2008 in favor of new statutes addressing unfair commercial practices. So anything that might have been prosecuted under the Fraudulent Mediums Act is now addressed by plain old consumer protection laws. Now, around this same time, we're also seeing the development of what will eventually become Wicca, which comes into its own in the 1950s after the repeal of the 1735 Witchcraft Act. Much easier to develop a modern witchcraft tradition when it's no longer illegal to practice your craft in public, you know? Now, keep in mind, Gardner and his followers never used the term Wicca or Wiccan to refer to themselves, but they did buy very heavily into that whole surviving witch cult idea, and they perpetuated that myth pretty relentlessly. Trey Dorn covers the origins and development of Wicca in an early episode of BS Free Witchcraft if you want more information. 1957. The Witchcraft Suppression Act of South Africa, which is still in force, and was based on the Witchcraft Act of 1735 and the previous Witchcraft Suppression Act of 1895. It prohibits a broad variety of activities related to witchcraft and traditional witch-hunting techniques. This law is one of many that has been under review since the end of apartheid, and as late as 2012, the government there is still considering more updated measures for dealing with this topic, and with the witch hunt still occurring in some part of the country. I'll be talking about this part 
more in depth in part two. 1972. The Church of Wicca becomes the first Wiccan organization to achieve official federal recognition as a religion in the United States. This came from an IRS ruling, of all things, that designated the organization well-known for correspondence courses in the brand of Wicca developed by Gavin and Yvonne Frost as a religious institution and therefore entitled to the same tax exemption that other religious institutions have for funding and donations received from the congregation and the community. It's a whole thing. I won't get into it now, but I do want to mention that the Church of Wicca is not the same as Gardnerian Wicca, and the Frosts are not very well regarded now. Without getting too far into it, their views on monotheism were not popular with the wider Wiccan community, and their views on the queer community did not age well. All that being said, the Church of Wicca did set a legal precedent as a federally recognized religious institution. 1986, Detmer v. Landon, landmark legal case in the U.S. For the first time, Wicca is recognized as a religion protected under the First Amendment in a court of law. Basically, what happened is that a guy by the name of Herbert Detmer wanted to have a dagger in his prison cell, under the assumption that it was an athame meant for ritual use. And yes, he was also seeking permission to have the other typical altar tools of Wicca as well, the cauldron, the wand, and the chalice. When prison officials refused to provide him with the requested ritual objects, he sued the director of the Department of Corrections for violating his rights. And in a landmark decision, the District Court of the Eastern District of Virginia agreed that Wicca was a religion, rather than the Department of Corrections claim that it was a conglomeration of occult practices that did not constitute a religion in and of itself. To quote from the Wikipedia article on the case, the conclusion of the Fourth Circuit was that the district court had found that Detmer had a religious belief entitled to full First Amendment protections, but that he was not entitled to an injunction since the decision to prohibit Detmer from possessing the items that he sought did not discriminate against him because of his unconventional beliefs. Basically, yes, this is a religion, but no, you can't have the knife. So Detmer didn't win the case. But this was the first time that a U.S. federal court recognized that Wicca is a religion, and as such, the rights of its practitioners are protected by the First Amendment. Other forms of paganism would later follow. It's difficult to say whether generalized paganism or simply being a witch in general is protected under freedom of religion in the U.S., since this generally refers to organized religious practices. And many witches these days have rather more eclectic paths or are entirely solitary. But the good news is the pentacle is recognized as a religious symbol. And if your particular practice is not covered under freedom of religion because it's not organized, it's very likely covered under freedom of speech. And that's where we're going to stop for now, because this has already gone on for way way longer than I thought it would. 
This literally took up more than 20 full pages of notes and script, at least some of which will be available as a transcript on my WordPress, along with a listing of my main sources and some Wikipedia articles for further online reading. Also, my voice is giving out and it's time to pause. <laughs> Again, if I missed anything, I apologize, but I feel that this was still pretty comprehensive. I mean, literal entire books have been written on this subject. Michael Bailey's Historical Dictionary of Witchcraft, Richard M. Golden's Encyclopedia of Witchcraft, The Western Tradition, Margot Adler's Drawing Down the Moon, and Ronald Hutton's Triumph of the Moon come to mind, all of which I recommend for anyone who wants more information on the vast amount of history I've covered in this episode. I'll be back later this month with another much shorter episode discussing modern laws concerning witchcraft and the real-life witch hunts that still happen in the world today. If you've stuck around till the end, thank you very much. I know that was a lot to take in, and I hope I made it interesting for you. I promise next month's episode is going to be so much lighter and more humorous in tone. As I said, I'm going to have Lozzie with me in the virtual studio, and we are going to shred us some witch hunters. So until next time, I'm your host, Brina Garen, reminding you to stay safe, keep wearing your mask, get vaccinated if you can, and always, always do your homework. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Garen on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hacks.